Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Speak On It, history and genealogy conversation with Janice Sherikana. We invite you to join us on Thursdays at 8 p.m. for an engaging exchange with us and our special guests as we cover various topics regarding history, genealogy, and your personal family history stories. Hello, I'm Janice Gilliard. And I'm Sharikana Feliciano. Welcome to Speak On It, History and Genealogy Conversations with Janice and Sharikana. Thank you for joining us, and please be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Today, we are joined by our guest, Warren Miltier, Jr. Warren Eugene Miltier, Jr. is an assistant professor of history at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. He received his Ph.D. from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in 2014. His publications include Beyond Slavery's Shadow, Free People of Color in the South, North Carolina's Free People of Color, and North Carolina's Free People of Color and Their Descendants, as well as articles in the Journal of Social History and the North Carolina Historical Review. Warren was also the recipient of the Historical Society of North Carolina's RDW Connor Award in 2014 and 2016 for the best journal article in the North Carolina Historical Review. Welcome to Speak On It, Warren. Thank you for uh, having me on. I'm delighted to be able to talk about my work today. Awesome. We're so glad to have you. So we're going to go ahead and get started. So our first question is, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Number one, what inspired you to write this book? And what age did you start doing your family research? All right, yeah. So I decided to write this book in the middle of finishing up my last book. So my last book was about free people of color in North Carolina. And, um, as I was working on that and getting feedback on that book, um, I saw that it was probably necessary to write a book that looked at free people of color in a more broad space. I was constantly getting questions about, um, well, you studied North Carolina, you found these things about North Carolina, but is what you found in North Carolina uh, applicable to other parts of the South or other parts of the United States? And so as I was getting questions like that and that type of feedback, I decided, yeah, I need to look a little bit more broadly. So I began doing research um, in some familiar places like the National Archives in Washington, D.C., and I expanded Mm -hmm. that research beyond D.C. into other parts of uh, the country. So I did research from everywhere from um, Louisiana to Tennessee to Delaware, Um, And so, of course, my uh, original interest in the topic of free people of color uh, stretches back much further than this project on North Carolina. So um, I began working on researching free people of color out of my own interest in my family. So I started doing research on my family history around age 12, and that's when I discovered that I was a descendant of free people of color. And so as I began to do research on my family, 
I started off with some of the basic records that a lot of people worked with back in the 90s, um, census records, birth and death records, things like that. But then as I uh, continued on my research, I began to go to the archives. So state archives like the one in Virginia and the one in North Carolina, which is where my family uh, and relatives are from. And there I began to do research on my family and started to also do research on families that were connected to my family. And that process kind of got bigger and bigger over time. You start to see that, oh, your family's from one county, but the people in the next county are related to you or they're related to people that you're related to. And so my project just got bigger and bigger. And I eventually figured that I could do more with the materials that I was finding besides simply cataloging them and putting them away. So that led me to uh, do research uh, during undergrad. And so I used some of the research I found in my family, but expanded that to do an undergraduate thesis and then continue with that work in uh, my master's program and my Ph.D. program. And so that's how I got to the topic of free people of color in the South, which is what we're talking about today. Okay. And I do like the statement, if it's okay, that one sentence where you said, my grandmother's stories about our ancestors and relatives initiated my interest in the history of free people of color. And it was, I thought it was very heartwarming where you said, I am in debt to her for that and so much more. This book is for her. So I thought that was awesome. Oh, yeah. So, um, as far as my my grandmother and, and her connection to this project, um, my grandmother used to always talk a lot about different relatives and family members um, that she knew. And she grew up in a community where she knew both close family members and also more distant relatives. And um, she, in, in particular, would talk a lot about her own grandmother, who was a free person of color, you know, um, this history it's not that far away. We we tend to think about people who were born in the 19th century as being very distant now, but that's not necessarily the case. Uh, and so her grandmother was born in the 1850s, right before the Civil War, and so she would have qualified as a free person of color. And there were other people who were around when my grandmother was growing up, the older people in the community who would have been born in the 1840s, 1850s, and uh, those people would have been free people of color um, before the Civil War. Right. Wow. Excellent. That's an outstanding family story. So, you know, let's get into some definitions then, right? Because the book is called Free People of Color, and we're talking about free people of color. But what does free people of color mean? Who who would that have included? Um, and then also in your book, you discuss the category Indian and how that relates to it. So can you expound and explain for us what those terms mean? Yes. So, um Free people of color is a term that encompassed people who were free during the period of slavery in the United States um, who were of African and or Native American descent. Now, when I talk about people of Native American descent, there's some complexity to how uh, free people of color was applied to people of Native American descent. So generally Mm -hmm. it was applied to people that the state didn't recognize um, as being part of a politically independent um, native nation. Um, Now that can get 
messy because Native people can see themselves as independent, and um, that might contradict what the state thinks about them. So there are instances where, you know, individuals who show up as Indian in one record and as a free person of color or a mulatto or even a Negro in another record. So uh, there's there's some complication there. But generally speaking, uh, in many parts of the South, free people of color encompass um, people of African descent as well as those of uh, Native American ancestry. Got it. Thank you. You know, that's interesting that you say that. I was speaking to, I have um, Native ancestry out of uh, Rhode Island, and uh, one of my cousins, he was saying, you know, it's important to know who you are and not be waiting or sitting and waiting for someone to tell you who you are, and that's why the research is so important. Um, Warren, in the book, you touched on groups like the Brown Fellowship Society who were known for their exclusivity based on complexion. What did your research reveal about this practice and its use in other groups or organizations? Yeah, so that that's the, the common understanding about the, the Brown Fellowship, that they used um, complexion to determine membership. Now, I should say that they're doing that within a context in which most people in uh, Charleston, South Carolina, where the organization was based, um, are categorized as mulattoes. Most free people of color are categorized mm-hmm. that way. Um, so what they exactly meant by, you know, brown and who who falls under that category and who doesn't is, isn't particularly clear. We don't have photographs of the people who are members of that organization or, or not many photographs. Um, and so it's hard to determine exactly how they were using complexion to, to figure out who belonged and who did not belong. But um, – whether that practice was actually more commonplace, it does not seem so that, you know, most organizations are using other criteria to determine who belongs and who doesn't belong. And even with the Brown Fellowship Society, they are also using um, class clearly as a way of determining who belongs and who doesn't belong. They are, they're also right. very cognizant of behavior and they have certain requirements for behavior. So for example, I talk about in my book, the um, society kicked out one member because he sold another free person of color as a slave. Um, so, you know, there's some complexity behind well, what they're even, you know, the way that they operate. It's not a, you know, very a black and white, white or brown and, and black <laughs> division, you know, clear right. brown and black division in this organization. And there's a lot more uh, complexity to that, that organization. But, of course, they're not the only organization in the South that uh, free people of color are part of. There are a variety of beneficial societies, and I would categorize the Brown Fellowship as a, a beneficial society. And they're across the South, everywhere from Delaware all the way down to New Orleans, and these organizations are meant to take care of the people who are members and take care of their families. Right. So they often include burial benefits, when a member gets sick, the other members of the group are there to take care of that individual and that individual's family, make sure they don't fall off. Um, and so in that sense, you know, these organizations, whatever their criteria is or, or their criteria were, uh, were instrumental in 
building community and sustaining community across the South. And um, they, there are all kinds of interesting things that these, these groups are doing. Some of them are interested in things as um, specific to their time as um, temperance. <laughs> so they're in the fight against alcohol all the way down mm-hmm. to um, being more uh, interested in joining together because they have common political interest or common academic interests. We see debate societies right. amongst free people of color too. So. Um, so, you know, when we spoke previously and also in the book, I mean, you touch on how the identity of free people of color became increasingly politicized, as you said. So can you tell us more about that, um, how the laws for free people of color changed over time? Yeah, so generally speaking, um, the laws that are passed in the South gradually become more strict um, and more problematic for free people of color. Now, there's some variation from state to state because the laws that deal with free people of color are made at the state level and even the local level. Um, Their ordinances passed by cities that um, challenge the rights of free people of color. And so basically okay. what's happening, what I describe in my book is that free people of color, especially by the late 1700s, but to some degree even before that, um, they're being tied to a more radicalized politics over the issue of slavery and a, and a, a gradually uh, radical politics about white supremacy in the South and to to a large extent in the nation as a whole because there's uh, anti-free people of color sentiment in the North as well. It's not just a Southern Mm -hmm. issue, but I discuss the South primarily in my book. And so what I'm able to show is that certain politicians use free people of color as a way to gain um, political power. So, for instance, I talk about some of the early uh, contests between the Federalist Party and the Jeffersonian Republican Party, which were the nation's two earliest political parties, and mm-hmm. in their contest for power over state governments and federal governments, some members of the uh, Re- Jeffersonian Republican Party in particular began to politicize the place of free people of color when it comes to voting rights. Because in the early nation, uh, voting rights often were only for men and Mm -hmm. often property men. And so you could potentially be uh, a free person of color and be able to vote in an election that a white man who doesn't have the same amount of property as you have, uh, that white man couldn't participate in that election. So the Jeffersonian Republicans turn that on their head on his head and they say, well, voting should be uh, be available to all white men regardless of their um, economic status. And isn't it a shame that free men of color can vote and you can't? That, that's the kind of uh, language that they're hmm. using. So we see things like that. Um, as we get into the later period, the 1850s, we see even – crazier ideas coming out of this coalition uh, between 
pro-slavery folks and uh, white supremacists. So in the 1850s, you see um, proposals to remove free people of color from from the southern states, and if they don't leave, they were to be enslaved. And so these Mm -hmm. proposals show up in most southern states and uh, are defeated in all of them with the exception of Arkansas, which does pass and enact a law uh, to remove or enslave its free people of color. So in reaction to that, um, the, the majority of free people of color in Arkansas leave the state. Um, there's a small number of them left by 1860. Um, now, I should also preface this by saying that Arkansas never had a large population of free people of color um, mm-hmm. compared to um, many other states in the South. But nevertheless, it, it's worth knowing that you know they did uh, enact that law and it did have an effect on the free people of color who lived in Arkansas. You know, and you also, um, you know, besides the politics, you also paint a really great picture of the complexities of everyday life among um, free people of color and their white white counterparts or peers um, or even family. And you kind of touch on their, you know, these conflicting ideologies that sometimes, like, you know, white people in the community might have about black people and free people of color. Um, I don't know if that's something you can expound on a little bit more here, but I thought that was really interesting. Um, you know, they might support something that was kind of racist, but also, you know, have no qualms about, you know, hanging out with, you know, for lack of a better word, free people of color. So I don't know if that's something that you can kind of expound on a little bit more, too, before we get to the next question. Oh, yeah, that, that's definitely the case. We see uh, a lot of uh, what we might see as hypocrisy amongst uh, certain white people in, in the South. Um, they'll have business relationships with free people of color, live next to free people of color, maybe even mm-hmm. socialize with them to some degree, but then uh, support politicians or even act as politicians who are stripping away the rights of free people of color. It's right. not completely unusual. And, and that's one of the, uh, I guess, important aspects of the book. And it tells us something about, you know, how politics works and how people in society work that, you know, people can have these contradictory or what seems to be contradictory behaviors or viewpoints. Um, and, that those contradictory behaviors and viewpoints are a fixed part of our society. I mean, I think there are plenty of examples of that today in the society we live in, and a lot of people scratch their heads. It's like, how is this possible? Well, <laughs> it, it, right. it to some degree seems like a, a part of the human condition, and, and it shows up in the 17th and 18th and uh, 19th century South, too. Interesting. Okay, so moving forward, uh, my question now is going to be a two-part question because um, one of our listeners, her name is Dustin Dumas, has a question for you. And her question is, what part did DNA play in finding your ancestors, if any, when writing this book? And then I'll move on to my question. Uh, So finding my ancestors in DNA? Uh, Not any part. I mean, um, 
I haven't located new ancestors by doing DNA testing. And, um, of course, they, it doesn't play a, a big role in the book itself. I mean, the materials used in the book are mostly uh, written, printed um, primary sources. So that's, that's where I, what I'm working with um, for this book. Okay, so I'm going to move forward. Interesting, and kind of the old school approach. <laughs> right. Paper oh, trail. Yeah, definitely. Uh-huh. Yeah. definitely. Okay, so for our listeners whose primary focus is on family history and genealogy, what do you think they will be able to glean from your book to help them in their research? Well, I think my book provides people who are working on family history and genealogy with uh, a good context for the world in which their ancestors lived. So it's one thing, you know, to know your ancestor's name, a date of birth, a place of birth, a date of death, a uh, location of death, and to, you know, have a basic outline of who your ancestors' relatives were. But it's another thing to get an understanding of how the society in which they lived operated, and that includes understanding the laws in which they lived under, how their communities operated socially and economically. So I talk a lot about uh, the social interactions of free people of color with the uh, with other people around them, both enslaved and free. Um, I also discuss their place in the economy, both how they were useful in the economy, but also how they specifically use the economy to build wealth and um, create an opportunities for their own families, whether that's uh, just simply feeding your family or going even further and uh, obtain things that weren't typical for people of their time, such as going to college. Um, so I think right. that the book provides that context. And also um, because my book is uh, a book built around time. So I start in the colonial period and go through the Civil War, you can see how life for free people of color, including your ancestors, might have changed over time. So I think Mm. that um, those aspects are really useful for people who are doing family history research and genealogical research, whether or not they find um, their specific ancestors in my book or not. Now, I've got a long list of names in this book, but um, by the 1860s, there were 250,000 or more than 250,000 free people of color in the South. So, of course, I couldn't put 250,000 names in the book, but I think it's a good start. Well, I have to say um, I'm going through it, and I'm reading the book now, and it is very, very engaging, very interesting and informative. Um, I have a number of free people of color, and, you know, I've discovered in my research and one of the names, and we kind of joked about this, that I would not say it because there's a certain way to pronounce it, but it's spelled M-E-T-O-Y-E-R-S. And so I was like, wow, I have those names in my DNA matches. So I would encourage folks to read the book for the historical content and just the wealth of information that you're sharing here. And you may discover one of your ancestors or the family names in your book. So I did find that very interesting. I was a little stunned that I saw that, that I found that. So <laughs> thank you. You know, and oh, I yeah, think, you definitely. know, Warren, you touch on a really important point that I think a lot of us who do genealogy and family history 
is the importance of putting it in a larger, you know, context where, where necessary, right? So we can understand, you know, how the times changed, how things impacted them. So we go kind of somewhat beyond the the tree and put them in a, you know, a broader context to understand, you know, what life was really like for them. Um, and that's right. really, really important in doing this. So our time is, is almost, I guess, just about ending. Um, what are some parting words that you want to share with our listeners? Yeah, well, first of all, I hope that uh, people have opportunity to check out the book, um, think about it, ask questions. And I should say that I think the book ha- should apply to um, or be interesting to a large group of people. Some people will be interested in the book because they're just purely interested in the story of free people of color in the South. But I think that the story of free people of color in the South offers more than just their personal stories. I think it provides a good background for people who are trying to understand even some of our more current challenges in society, such as our uh, conversations about criminal justice and how criminal justice works. Um, Uh You see an evolution in the criminal justice system, even in the the relatively short period that I discuss in the book uh, when it comes to free people of color and the laws that determine their um, liberty and privileges in the South. Also, I think that the book offers us a good insight into the development of our immigration system in the United States. Uh, Mm. So I think if you're interested in that topic, I think this book would be great for you. And, of course, voting rights. Um, As we're learning today, voting rights are something that ebb and flow in our society, and they ebbed and flowed in the society in which free people of color live, too. So if you're interested in that topic, I think you can can get a lot from the story of free people of color in the South. Absolutely. There's a lot here. Um, Warren, thank you so much for sharing with us and our listeners. His book, Beyond Slavery's Shadow, Free People of Color in the South, was just released, I believe, on October 5th and can be found at warrenmultier.com. To our listeners, thank you for joining us, and we look forward to sharing with you during our next segment of Speak on It. So, Warren, the last time that you were on Block Talk Radio with Bernice Bennett, you had over 1,700 listeners, and we are confident that um, a lot of people are listening tonight and have learned and are encouraged to support you and purchase your book. Speak on it is a podcast and is immediately available to listen to at your leisure. Speak on it is sponsored by Bernice Bennett of Research at the National Archives and Beyond Block Talk Radio. Thank you. Thank you.